We've all seen it. An earthquake, a tsunami, the picture of that disgruntled young man on the news, uh, the latest active shooter in the mass shooting, a funeral attended by crying people dressed in black. We've all heard it, the yelling of husband and wife who are supposed to love each other more than anyone else on earth, the gossip of those you thought were your friends, the curse words of that person who was just so upset and so frustrated. We've all tasted and smelled it, spoiled milk, rotting fruit, decay, and decomposition. We've all felt it, the prick from a sharp thorn on a beautiful rose, a headache, the flu, coughing, sneezing, allergies, the rejection from unrequited love, the frustration of studying hard but still getting a bad grade, the monotony and boredom of work. We've all seen it, we've all heard it, we've all tasted and smelled it, and we've all felt it. We've all experienced it. What is it? It's the curse of God upon this earth. Turn to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to be in Romans 8 this evening, but uh, we're going to start in Genesis 3 for background. God created the universe in six days and then rested on the seventh. And Genesis reads that the creation was good. No tarnish, no blemish, no stain. It was perfect. But then along comes the serpent who takes Eve by his cunning. And she eats the forbidden fruit, and Adam does the same. And as punishment and judgment for their disobedience, God curses them. He, he curses the serpent, then he curses Eve, and then he curses Adam. And for the purpose of getting some background to understand Romans 8 better, let's focus in on the curse to Adam, the curse on the man, found in Genesis chapter 3, verses 17 to 19. And to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree which, of which I have commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. So you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Adam's curse can be broken down into two main parts. First, there will be pain in work. There will be pain in work. Before the curse, Adam cultivated the ground and kept the ground, and the ground gladly, willingly, and abundantly gave up its fruit. But now in verse 17, God curses the ground, and then verse 18, there are now thorns and thistles and, 
Adam, you're going to have to sweat just to eat. You're going to have to work hard and, and use your muscles to till the ground, and you're going you're to sweat just so that you can eat. It's been said that the curse turned Adam from a gardener to a farmer. And then the second part of Adam's curse is in verse 19. To say it simply, you're going to die. You're just dust. And you're going to return to the dust of the ground. One day, you will die. And this is the ultimate manifestation of the fall, death. So it's against this dark backdrop that we now turn to Romans chapter 8 and see a light, see a hope that one day this horrific curse will be reversed. Romans chapter 8. As we're continuing our study of Romans, we find ourselves in verse 18, and we're going to study through verse 27. Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18 and reading down to verse 27. The Apostle Paul writes, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the firstfruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we Wait eagerly for the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he searches hearts. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The very first word of verse 18 is the word for. Uh, this connecting word that pulls our eyes backwards to verse 17 where we ended last week. Verse 17 reads, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Uh, here in verse 17, we see some amazing truths, that we are adopted into the very family of God, that we are heirs of his inheritance, that one day we will be given an inheritance by God himself. But then there's this little part of verse 17 that... We don't like to hear. That kind of stands out to us. That little phrase, provided we suffer with him. 
And then back to the good stuff, in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, this road to our glorious inheritance is suffering. First the suffering, then the glory. The pathway to future glory is present suffering. The reality is that you guys, in order to be a faithful Christian in college, may have to endure some hardships. To be a faithful Christian in college means that you might not get into the grad school that you really want to get into. It might mean that you lose some friends. It might mean that you're not invited into certain circles, that you're seen as the weirdo. To be a faithful Christian in college means that perhaps your relationship with your parents, either your mom or your dad or both, is going to be damaged and can't be repaired. Maybe your brother and sister, and every time you talk to them about Christ, it is a point of contention. You will sacrifice time for the church. You will sacrifice energy for the church. You will experience heartache in this life. You'll experience heartache even in the church. And so the question that stares us in the face, the obvious question after verse 17 is, is it all worth it? Is it worth it? Is it worth it to walk down this costly path of Christianity? And the answer in our passage today is an emphatic yes. Verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Paul broadens this suffering to any kind of suffering in verse 18, not just suffering with him, like in verse 17, but now all suffering, any suffering, any difficulty faced on this cursed planet is not worth comparing to the glory to be revealed to us. Uh, This glory speaks of the beauty and power and greatness of God, the sum total of his attributes, who he is, his characteristics, his love, grace, mercy, justice. We'll see it all one day. We'll see it all in heaven. 1 John 3, 2, we will see him as he is. His own glory will be revealed to us and the sufferings, Paul says, aren't even worthy to be compared to the kind of glory that you're going to see when you see God in heaven. It's as if Paul puts before us a grand scale. And on this side of the scale, you have sufferings, any any difficulty, any pain, any anguish that you might face in this life, and then on this side of the scale, you put the glory of God that you one day will see and partake in, and when you put the glory of God on the other side of the scale, the pain and suffering just flies off. Don't even try to compare it. It's not even close. The weight of glory is so much more. The tears of this world can't even compare to that moment when you see Jesus Christ with your own eyes and he wipes away your last tear and tells you there's nothing left to cry about 
because he is the Alpha and the Omega, and he makes all things new. 2 Corinthians 4, 17 to 18, for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Compared to the weight of glory, your affliction is light. Compared to eternity, the forever you will experience with this glory, your affliction is momentary. The point of verse 18 is that it's worth it. It's worth it. And that's a comfort to you if you're in any kind of distress today. Whatever you're going through, it's worth it. Because the trial is only temporary and it's going to give way to a greater glory, an everlasting one. Verse 18 is really the topic sentence of our passage today. Everything else that we're going to study elaborates on what verse 18 is talking about. That it's worth it. So today, let's look at three comforting truths for the suffering. Three comforting truths for the suffering. First, we're going to see the future renewal of creation. Verses 19 to 22. The future renewal of creation. Verse 19 reads, For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. Here we have personification, a vivid, poetic language. The creation, all the stuff in the universe, stars, planets, rocks, trees, mountains, rivers, ants, spiders, elephants, blue whales, are given emotions. They feel something. They long deeply for something. Verse 19 says that this creation longs to see something. The creation stands on its tiptoes and and strains its neck upward to see something. I want to see something, they say, and what they want to see is you. The revealing of the sons of God, that is those who are Christians. A creation is not waiting for us to become the sons of God, but the revealing of the sons of God. We're already God's sons if you are a Christian, but there is a future day where you will be revealed in a greater way, unveiled in a greater way. And we're going to see that in more detail in verse 23 when we discuss our adoption as sons and the redemption of our bodies. But suffice it to say for now, here in verse 19, that the hope of creation is tied in with the hope of man. You see, the curse of creation is also tied in with the curse of man. When Adam sinned, God declared, cursed is the ground. And so the curse of creation is tied in with our curse. And in the same way, the destiny of the creation is tied in with our destiny. Our future revealing triggers the renewal of creation. So, the rocks, rivers, trees, clouds, planets, and blue whales can barely contain themselves. They say, God, reveal them. Show them. How long is it going to be before you reveal your sons for the world to see? Because they know that their future is tied up 
in that. Creation wants to rise up and do what it's been created to do because right now it can't. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Uh, Futility has to be one of the ugliest words in the human language. It means to be without success. Uh, being unable to achieve a goal, unable to achieve a purpose. It speaks of failure and frustration. The creation can't do what it was meant to do. It doesn't work right. The creation was meant to be an amphitheater for the glory of God, but it can't display it right. It's messed up. Notice that it was subjected, the passive verb. It was subjected against its will. To be even more obvious, it says, not willingly. It wasn't the creation's choice to be cursed. It's not like the cows and the river said, bring on the curse. No, Adam cursed and God, uh, Adam sinned and God was the one who pronounced the curse. All creation is in the grip of futility. It's subject to malfunction and corruption Guys, even if you land your dream job, there's going to be parts of it that you don't like, that you find monotonous and frustrating. Uh, Even if you like being a student and you like to study, you know that there are some times where you just don't feel like studying because it hurts your head because you just don't like it. And one day you're going to meet that person. She's perfect. She's the one. And then you're going to step off cloud nine. And you're going to see that she's not perfect. That she's far from it. Because we live on a broken planet. And who broke it? God broke it as punishment for sin. He subjected it. But by his grace, it's not broken beyond use. Because there's still beauty in a night sky full of stars. Uh, There's still grandeur in mountain ranges. There's still pleasure and nourishment in eating a good meal There's still joy in work and in studying hard and learning new things. There's still enjoyment in playing games and sports and competition. There's still genuine love to be experienced in relationships, but the curse has wrapped its cold fingers around all these things so that when you experience them, you know that it's frustrating at times and it hurts sometimes and it leaves no doubt in your mind that this world is broken. The creation was subjected to futility, but it was subjected, look at that last phrase in verse 20, in hope. It's a small light that shines on this dark planet, and and the pleasure that you get from eating your favorite food, and the enjoyment that you get from playing that game and the the love that you feel from that relationship is a sample it's a foretaste it's a glimmer of hope 
And it gives you an idea of what life is going to be like after the curse is reversed. What kind of hope is this? Let's keep reading in verse 21. I notice there's no comma or period after the phrase in hope. It just keeps on going into verse 21. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. What is creation's hope? That it will be set free from its bondage to corruption. Creation is in shackles. Creation is enslaved to corruption. It can't not tend toward corruption. It can't get better. It can only get worse. But it will be set free. Notice another passive verb, just like was subjective. God is the one who is active here. He cursed the ground and he will release it. He will set it free by his grace and according to his perfect plan. 2 Peter 3.13 calls this renewal the new heavens and the new earth in which righteousness dwells. Revelation 21, 1-4 calls it a new heaven and a new earth where the dwelling place of God is among men. Isaiah 11 gives an, a sample of what it's going to look like when the curse is reversed. Uh, verses 6 to 8, And the wolf will dwell with the lamb, and the leopard will lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the young lion and the fatling together, and a little boy will lead them. Also the cow and the bear will graze, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child will put his hand in the viper's den. So weird. What kind of world is this? Where the sheep and the wolf are besties. Because right now, they're sworn enemies. They hate each other. I guess you could say that the wolf loves the lamb, but for all the wrong reasons. And then the weirdest part, verse 8, the nursing child will play by the hole of the cobra and the weaned child will put his hand on the viper's den. If my little baby Owen, who just learned how to sit up, is sitting up and playing next to a viper's den, I'm going to be a little, I'm going to be more than a little nervous. And if outside in childcare they're allowing Nene and Jordan to play with snakes, then those people are going to be immediately fired <laughs> and put on A team. I don't know why, they just they can be on A team. <laughs> This is a different world. Uh, this is the curse reversed. Everything changes. The animal kingdom is restored to the way it's supposed to be. They're not going to tear each other apart. They're going to live together in harmony. And then man and animal's relationship is going to be restored to the way it's supposed to be also. Just like Adam and the animals, Nene can nuzzle up with the little cobra if he wants. And they're going to be best friends. Uh, this renewal is what creation is waiting for. That's, that's what is, as verse 22 says, what creation is groaning for. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. 
Here we have the first of three groanings. I wonder if you notice this repetition on that word groaning as we're reading the passage. Verse 22, the whole creation has been groaning. Verse 23, we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly. Verse 26, the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Creation groans, Christians groan, and the Holy Spirit groans. It's no wonder that this passage has been called a symphony of sighs. Uh, There are three groanings, and if you trace them, you're really going to find the outline of our passage today. I just followed the three groanings. Three groanings, three points. A groan is audible, but not necessarily verbal. And by that I mean that you can hear it, it makes noise, but it's not necessarily words. But at the same time, even though it's not words, it does communicate something. It can communicate something important, something significant, and something deep. It conveys emotions. If you ask your roommate as they walk in the door, how was that midterm? Oh. You know what they mean. That communicates something. It communicates pain. It communicates anguish, frustration. And in verse 22, the illustration is childbirth. The groans of creation are compared to the groans of a mother in labor. Uh, These broken aspects of creation are the groanings that are like the groanings of a mother giving birth. Oh, it hurts. It's painful. But it'll soon be over, and all this pain and anguish will soon be forgotten as soon as that mom holds that little baby for the first time. Again, it does hurt. There's a lot of pain, tremendous pain. But all of that pain isn't even worthy to be compared to the joy that that mom now has. We're right back in verse 18. So the first comfort is this. Uh, This messed up, groaning planet isn't groaning the groans of someone in the ER who's about to die. It's groaning the groans of a mother in the maternity ward. It'll soon be over. An unspeakable joy will soon replace it. Joy that we'll experience as we walk on the new earth. And we then become the focus of the passage in point two. Let's now look at the future redemption of believers. We turn from the future renewal of creation to the future redemption of of believers. Verse 23. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Creation isn't the only one groaning in anticipation for future glory. We are too. Within the groaning of creation is a groaning church. 
Because it's not just that the earth is broken. We're broken. Though we do have what verse 23 calls the first fruits of the Spirit. This agricultural metaphor that we're given here. Uh, the first fruits would have been uh, the first grains or the first vegetables or the first fruits of the harvest season. And so the farmer goes out and it's been a long winter, but finally he sees some fruit. And so he goes out to inspect his trees and he sees apples, lots of them, delicious, firm, crispy, juicy, red apples. And that is an indication of what is to come. Great. It's going to be a great harvest season. We're getting more apples just like that. It's an indication of what is to come. And here the Holy Spirit is called the first fruits. He is an indication of what is to come. He is a foretaste of what we will experience in the future. You see, we've seen some activity of the Holy Spirit already, haven't we? Verse 5, if you look back there, if we live according to the Spirit, then we experience his power to put off the flesh and resist sin. Verse 6, the mindset on the Spirit is life and peace. Verse 9, the Spirit dwells within us. And this is just the first fruits. This is just an indication of what is to come. The presence of the Spirit now lives within us. We experience the presence of God himself. Well, you will do so in the future as well. And all the more so. Uh, we get life, we get peace we get sanctification and holiness by the power of the Holy Spirit now, just a foretaste, just a sample of what is to come. There's more in store. As we experience the Holy Spirit empowering us to turn from sin, to obey God, and to truly love God from the heart, that's just a taste that makes us want more, makes us long for more, makes us groan for more, for what Paul calls the adoption as sons. Now, wait a second here. Aren't we already adopted? Isn't that what we learned about last week in verses 14 to 17? Yes, we have been adopted, and what we have here is what some have called already but not yet theology. Already but not yet. Yes, we have already been adopted, but there's a fuller manifestation of the adoption, a fuller revealing of the sons of God, as we saw in verse 19. You see, we're in God's family. We've been adopted in, but in the future, it's going to be revealed. It's going to be manifested. It's going to be unveiled in a greater way. We've already been adopted. He's already chosen us in the orphanage picked us up and taken us home. He's already given us our own room and new clothes and food to eat, and we're already loved as a part of the family, but little do we know, our father has a big party planned on Saturday, and he's invited all his friends and all his family, and it's going to be a grand unveiling of this son that is so precious to him that he has adopted. That's in the future. Well, what is this, this future, ultimate manifestation of our adoption? You don't have to look far. It's in the very next phrase. We wait eagerly 
for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. When Christ returns, we will have bodies redeemed from all their imperfections, frailty, and sinfulness. Do you see how this is the ultimate reversal of the curse? The worst part of the curse is that Adam would return to the dust, and you will. You will die, and you will lay six feet under the ground, and your body will become dust. But in reversing the curse, God, by his grace, will take that dust and form a new body for you, a redeemed body, a better body that will no longer be subject to the temptation to sin. It will be a righteous body fit to live for God's glory for all eternity. Philippians 3, 20 to 21, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Our bodies will be new, no longer able to sin, only desiring to honor God. 1 John 3, 2, we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. We will be like him because we'll see him as he is. We will be righteous like he's righteous. We're going to be pure like he is pure. We're going to speak kindly to each other because he speaks kindly. We're going to be tender. We're going to be gracious. We're going to be compassionate perfectly because that's the way he is. And so it's no wonder that we're called the sons of God, that here is the final grand revealing of the sons of God. Because when we act just like him, people will see and they will say, you must be God's son. You must be God's son. You act just like him. You look like your mom and your dad at least a little bit. You ever have someone say that to you? You got your dad's nose. You got your mom's ears. And if you haven't already caught yourself acting like your mom or your dad and saying something that they have said, you will. Just live longer. Just have kids, and you will find that you are very much like your parents both in appearance and in personality, there's always going to be some resemblance to your parents. And so when we get our redeemed, glorified body that only choose holiness, only choose righteousness, only choose purity, and only choose love, the resemblance will be unmistakable. We will be revealed as sons of God. But not yet. Already, but not yet. This tension that we have. And so it's no wonder that Paul goes on to talk about hope. That hope is an inevitable part of the Christian life. We're promised this glorious ultimate adoption, but not yet. So we wait. So we hope. 
verse 24, in this hope we were saved. When we got saved, we were automatically given this hope. It's built into our salvation. Now, hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? Rhetorical question. Obviously, no one. If you can see it, then by definition, you no longer hope for it. But God designed the Christian life to be, verse 25, hoping for what we do not see and waiting for it with patience. Biblical hope is certain. It's not like what we talk about when we say, I hope, I hope, I hope, keep my fingers crossed, I wish, I wish, I wish the chemotherapy will work. Because it might not. There's an element of uncertainty there, but biblical hope is more like, I know December 25th is coming. It's going to be a great celebration. Family's going to come over, presents and great food. Biblical hope is more like, I know that summer is coming. And it's coming soon. Yeah, there's some midterms and finals in the way, and got to work hard on those, but summer is coming. And so I'm going to enjoy it. I'm going to sleep as long as I want. Not going to set that alarm clock. I'm going to enjoy my mom's cooking. I'm going to hang out with my friends and go to the beach and it's going to be a great time. That, that time is coming. It's certain. But not yet. Our Christian hope is sure, but it's not yet realized. And all we have to do is wait. Now, Randy Alcorn in his book Heaven uh, writes a, a good summary of this longing, this, this desire, uh, this waiting that we have. Uh, he writes, we are homesick for Eden. We're nostalgic for what is implanted in our hearts. We long for what the first man and woman once enjoyed, a perfect and beautiful earth with free and untainted relationships with God, each other, animals, and our environment. Every attempt at human progress has been an attempt to overcome what was lost in the fall. Our ancestors came from Eden. We are headed toward a new earth. Meanwhile, we live out our lives on a sin-corrupted earth, between Eden and the new earth. But we must never forget that this is not our natural state. Sin and death and suffering and war and poverty are not natural. They are the devastating results of our rebellion against God. We long for a return to paradise, a perfect world, without the corruption of sin, where God walks with us and talks with us in the cool of the day. This is our hope. This is our great longing. This is our groaning, and this is what we wait for, our future redemption. Now let's now look at the third truth that is a comfort to all those who are suffering this evening and that is the present prayers of the Holy Spirit. Verses 26 to 27. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. 
And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And these two verses were transported from the future back to the present, where our hope is not yet realized, but we do have the first fruits. We do have the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. John 16, 7 calls the Holy Spirit the helper, and here we see him doing his helping work, his assisting, his aiding. He helps us in our weakness. Well, what's our weakness? Keep reading. It's our weakness in prayer, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We're weak in prayer. We have finite minds, human frailties, spiritual limitations. We don't always pray for the right things. We don't always pray in accordance with God's perfect will, especially when we're under the pressure of a trial. Sometimes we miss things that we should be praying for. Sometimes we fall asleep when we should be praying. And sometimes we pray selfishly, and sometimes we pray unwisely. But here we have a helper who aids us in praying. He intercedes for us, it says, with groanings too deep for words. Again, groanings are audible, but not verbal. No words, but understandable. And what's communicated in these groanings is deep, deep emotions. Here, it's so deep that they can't even be put into words. Yet they're understandable to God the Father, who the Spirit prays to. And it's so interesting that the Holy Spirit's prayers are described as groaning. Uh, this, this deep, emotional kind of sound you see, we don't pray deep enough. We don't pray emotionally enough. We don't pray with enough heart in it. So the Spirit prays for us. He hits a deeper level in asking for our spiritual health and for our spiritual welfare. And that's a huge comfort to us because verse 27 says, he who searches the heart and knows the mind of the Spirit is God the Father. You see, verse 27, the subject is God the Father. God the Father searches our hearts. He knows us inside and out. And God the Father knows the mind of the Spirit inside and out. So when the Spirit prays for us, God knows exactly what the Spirit means. And God knows exactly the needs of our hearts. It's crystal clear communication in these prayers. And if that's not comforting enough, the end of verse 27 says the Spirit prays according to the will of God. So put it all together here. God the Father takes what the Holy Spirit prays. And the Father knows exactly what the Spirit means because he knows the mind of the Spirit. And then the Father takes that prayer and applies it directly and specifically to our hearts because he knows perfectly our hearts and what they need. What a mystery. And I can't pretend like I know exactly what this is talking about here. Uh, it is strange, even for me, as I've studied this before. Uh, I don't know exactly what this is talking about. I don't know exactly what kinds of things the Holy Spirit actually prays for. I wish I knew. I wish I knew. But they're too deep for words. It's a mystery, 
but it's a comfort that the Holy Spirit prays directly for you. When you don't know what to pray for, when you're at a loss for words, when your prayers are not deep and emotional as they should be, the Spirit prays those prayers for you, and these prayers will be answered because they're in accordance with the will of God perfectly. Uh, This passage is meant to comfort you in your trials. Uh, This passage is meant to put a rock under your feet. Uh, This passage is meant to be an anchor for your soul in the midst of the storm. But I can't help but think, as we take a step back from this passage, that some of you have been kind of zoning out this whole time. Some of you are like, oh, how do you know? No, no, I'm just saying (laughs) that when I announced that this passage was going to be about suffering, you didn't think it was for you. Because you're so young and so healthy and many of you so protected and sheltered, you haven't really experienced much pain, uh, many trials at all. And so you feel, I, I don't really need the rock. I don't really need an anchor. There's no storm. And I'll be the first to raise my hand and say that as I studied this passage, I had a hard time relating to it because I have not experienced any major trials in my life, that I have lived a, a life of relative ease and comfort. Who hopes for what he already sees? I've already seen some good stuff, and my, my good life has, has kind of blocked my view from looking past the horizon, uh, looking into eternity. It's hard for me to do that because this life is good, and, and I'm sure for most of you, it's the same way. I mean, have we accumulated so many comforts in this life? Have we made life so easy? Have we accumulated so many toys? And have we just obsessed over our little phones so much and enjoyed our little phones so much that we've begun to decorate the hotel room? And we start to think that the hotel room is better than the mansion that Jesus went away to prepare for us. And so this passage, friends, take to heart. Because it reminds us that this is broken. That as much as we decorate it and as much as we try our best to surround ourselves with comfort is broken that it's just the hotel room. And this is a passage that reminds us that all of this is just the first fruits. The Christian life at its best, empowered by the Holy Spirit, is just the first fruits, pointing to a greater and more abundant harvest. This is a passage that reminds us that all of this life isn't even worth comparing to the glory That is to be revealed when we see our God face to face. 